Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Jeannie Gillespie, and I'm your host for New Books in Popular Culture. Recently, I spoke with Mark McCarry and Paul Malone about the new book, Boys Love Manga, Essays on the Sexual Ambiguity and Cross-Cultural Fandom of the Genre. McCarry met with his co-editors, Tony Levy and Drew Pagliasotti at YaoiCon, and they pulled together this fascinating collection of essays by scholars, producers of manga, and also consumers. Malone comes to us from the University of Waterloo, and he's contributed an essay to the collection on manga and its reception and economic power in Germany. Hi, Mark. Hi, Paul. Hi. (laughs) Hello. Hey, glad we're working this out with three-way conversations. So, um, Mark, I'm going to let you start and tell us a little bit about your background and about how the uh, collection of essays came together. Uh, sure. Um, I'm an independent scholar, and I'm interested very much in Japanese popular culture. Um, so I was at a fan event called uh, YaoiCon in Northern California um, back in '06, I think, yeah. And um, I ran into a professor from Portland State, um, Antonio Levy, uh, who had published a book on samurai um, soldiers, a book on contemporary anime and manga. And, um, you know, we hit it off. And the following year, we were both there at the next YaoiCon in 07, and we met Drew Pagliasotti. Um, and so the three of us at that con sat down together at a table, and we were chatting, and I suggested, you know, hey, let's do a book. <laughs> so, um, you know, we obviously had to do some research to see if this would fly with publishers. Um, and that takes a while. Books, you know, books are terribly a long process, but uh, here we are. Um, I can tell you a little bit about what the book is. Um, it's a collection of um, scholarly essays on uh, boys love manga, just as it sounds. Um, it's focused on how it is uh, received in the West, uh, or rather outside Japan, I should say. Um, so it's not on Japanese um, content. Uh, you know, it's not on manga and uh, anime about boys love in Japan, uh, but more about their um, the products that are um, you know that have that genre, that flavor in uh, other regions. Um, so there's 14 essays, uh, plus an introduction, um, has a bibliography, and it's indexed. And we dedicated the, the book to uh, Yonezawa Yoshihiro. Um, Yonezawa-san is the co-founder of the Comic Market, uh, which started in uh, Tokyo uh, back in the early 70s, mid-70s. And it's become a huge uh, event, and it's become the cradle, the birthplace, uh, really, for uh, the growth of boys love manga in Japan. Um, so you know we wanted to kind of recognize that. Um, so that's the uh, that's the book. And you're here with one of your collaborate collaborators, correct? Yes, yes. Paul Malone um, has uh, considered a chapter, um, a very in-depth uh, look at uh, boys love manga in Germany. Uh, Paul, do you want to say a little bit about your essay? Uh, I can. I mean, first of all, I should say I'm a my my field is German, German literature and, and German cultural history, German film. Uh, so I'm I'm a complete outsider both to um, 
Asian studies uh, and uh, certainly to to those that uh, overlap uh, queer studies on Du Bois' Love Manga. I'm, I'm, I don't belong in that uh, in that bag either. Uh, but manga is tremendously popular in Germany, um, and uh, Boys Love Manga is one of the most, uh, I'm using this term uh, quite deliberately, passionately embraced um, manifestations of, of manga, not just in Japan, but, but elsewhere. Uh, and it really motivates uh, fans to become producers, and in the case of, of Germany, um, not only producers, but publishers. Uh, and now that, to me, is, is incredibly interesting in a, co- in a country where uh, comic book culture uh, is not as established as it is, certainly not in Japan, but also not by uh, North American standards. Great, thanks. Um, before we get further into Paul's essay, I think maybe we could talk a little bit about what Boys Love Manga is, what it what the the rage is, because I also consulted my expert group of teenage girls here in Mississippi, and they're quite fascinated by it as well. So maybe you could give us a little bit more background, Mark, on on the subgenre itself. Uh, yeah, sure. It um, it started off in uh, Japan, obviously in the late, especially uh, late nineteen sixties, um, in the wake of the uh, beginning of the manga boom. Uh, of Japan that would later become just you know, huge, um, and it um, there were women who were working at manga publishers, and you know they wanted to do something a bit different, and they would draw stuff on the side, and they would just do it on you know for their own um, benefits. And at some point, you know, one of them went to a publisher and said, you know, you know, how about it? Uh, one of the two um, manga that are considered a movement foundational manga for boys love. Uh, Toma no Shinjo by uh, Motohagyo in uh, was published in 1974, and then another one uh, by her uh, roommate. They, they were you know living together at the time. They shared a flat. Uh, is Kazetoki Uta um, song or poem of wind and tree? The first title would be uh, translated something like Thomas's heart, um, and they're both about um, adolescent uh, young adolescent uh, boys in. Uh, boarding schools, um, in, one in France, the other in Germany, and about what happens to them there. And they're, they're both very long, they're you know, epic kinds of works, and they were incredibly popular. Uh, they were best-selling works on publication, although um, the Kazi Tokina Uta was delayed because of uh, it, it was it's a very a show that's very frank, depictions of male-male eroticism, so there was some delay before it could get published. Um, and they're still in print. Uh, they've been published in several editions since. So, um, you know, it's just grown from that. Um, women in Japan typically do uh, voice of manga will start off as amateurs, but um, at some point they may become professional. Um, but they will continue to draw their own manga uh, called uh, Doshishi, a fan, fan-produced manga. They'll still do that on the side, and they'll sell that. And that's what they'll sell at the comic market. And that's fascinating because I think, Paul, what you're looking at, the idea of that translating to a German audience. So I wonder if you could build on, on what's happened to the manga as it becomes integrated in the German economy. Well, it, there are similarities uh, between the German situation and other Western comics industry situations, and there are differences. Uh, the major difference is the fact that compared to uh, the U.S., uh, I'm Canadian, so I'll often of the U.S. or America as, as the other as well, but uh, rather, you know, I, I'm, I'm uh, 
I'm also I'm a North American, uh, but I'm not an American. Uh, but the, the the two other major comics producing countries are of course the U.S. and France. Uh, and in those countries, uh, comics culture, um, at least once, argue, arguably could be called a genuine mass medium, uh, as rather than a niche medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's never been the case in Germany, where Germany has uh, has always treated comics very much as as a niche and a very much um, disreputable niche, um, suitable only for children, and well, you should keep your kids away from it too, frankly. <laughs> um, much like the, the, the attitude in the 1950s in, in the U.S. I mean, that's always been prevailing cultural attitude in, in Germany. And it's left uh, German comics fans, who certainly exist, and German comics publishers, feeling a bit besieged. Um, the arrival of manga, and here we come to some of the similarities, uh, in Germany, just as in the U.S. or in France, uh, suddenly meant the import of a kind of fresh to, to westernized aesthetic, um, a different kind of psychological basis for storytelling that seemed unpredictable to Westerners. Uh, and most importantly, from a sort of demographic uh, capitalist basis, uh, it appealed to a much broader demographic, both in terms of age and in terms of gender. And uh, in the U.S., France, and Germany, uh, mainstream comics, certainly since the mid-1970s, early 1980s, uh, had increasingly become a boys' club. Um, uh, you know, superhero comics in the U.S., sure. adventure comics in, in uh, Europe, um, really speak to uh, overwhelmingly to a male audience. And the uh, niches that had once catered to you know, female readers, um, romance comics, uh, things like that, and to younger readers of, of any gender, uh, funny animal comics, had pretty much died out. Uh, so manga meant a reintroduction of a huge range of styles and genres that appealed to female readers of all ages and appealed to uh, readers who were under 14. And that was that, was, that of course, uh, for a relatively marginalized uh, industry like the, like the German industry, that, that meant a huge uh, demographic difference in, in the appeal that they could then um, uh, advertise. Sure, I think that's fascinating. I think also the the whole um, comic genre for females also fascinates me. And I wonder, Mark, if you could talk a little bit more about the popularity in Japan and then how that's translated. And again, as Paul was saying, through all different age groups and also really across the the, the world. Um, yeah, it um, in the U.S. there were a couple events that. Uh, that I think was responsible for the growth of um, what's called yaoi um, here, Yamanashi, Ochinashi, Minashi, for an ironic acronym for no climax, no point, no meaning. Um, it's a word used in Japanese, uh, but Japanese typically referred to a voice of manga as beru manga, um, you know, adopting the English loan words, uh, you, know, those, uh, you know, those characters are foreign to Japanese. But here we, we do the opposite. We take a Japanese word uh, for it. But what happened um, was um, there was an anime called uh, Gundam Wing um, that aired on the Cartoon Network in the late 90s. And um, at the same time, obviously, <laughs> the web was, you know, starting its trajectory to, you know, where it is now. Um, you know, sort of an all-pervasive kind of medium that's become. Um, and that it gave a platform. It gave a platform to these young girls that Paul just mentioned, uh, who, you know, in their bedrooms, in their homes, you know, could 
create works. They could draw, they could, more here in the U.S., more commonly they write, and they could upload it without any editorial control, without any parental or educational school supervision. You know, they were doing what they wanted to do. They had the freedom now to do it. Um, and they saw this, they saw this anime and they said, imagine the possibilities. Um, and it just took off. So what they did was they, you know, wrote, uh, fan fiction stories, uh, about, you know, the characters of this anime, um, involved in homoerotic situations. Um, which incidentally was not at all unrecognized by the establishment in Japan. The commercial publisher who owns the right, um, sunrise to these characters, uh, of this particular uh, product, Gundam Wing, uh, um, produced a, a phone card, a telephone card with NTT, Nippon Telegraph and Telephone. Oh. They produced a phone card with the illustration showing two of the characters, uh, Duo Maxwell and Hiro Yoi, in an embrace, wow. uh, a very kind of defiant, proud embrace. And they did this for their fans. This was um, this phone card was published uh, in, a, in a magazine called Animash, which is still a very major uh, magazine. It's the major magazine in Japanese for anime and, and manga. And, um, you know, that's just, yeah, I mean, the owners of Tantan in France, <laughs> you know, the owners here wouldn't do that. Although we have seen superheroes um, who are gay. Um, that's certainly, you know, um, that's certainly now part of the landscape for comics in the U.S. And I don't know much about comics in the U.S. So I apologize. But, you know, there is that. But they still really are very distinct um, uh, genres they've very they come from very distinct places and they've maintained their you know their sort of separateness uh as comic genres um maybe paul can speak to that better than i can but i don't know paul do you see do you, are you seeing a blend at all or 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 is it really it's, kind of it's very difficult partly because the mainstream comics in the u.s are so corporate controlled and and sure. moreover most of the mainstream i mean the two the big two uh, Marvel and DC, the home of the American superheroes, um, are, are are wings of, of um, multimedia conglomerates, um, and basically uh, Marvel is now owned by Disney, uh, since, uh, just a few months ago, really, and uh, and uh, DC, of course, home of Superman and Batman, has been owned by Warner Communications for, for decades now. Um, They've really been kind of almost relegated to a kind of cheap research and development section where movie properties can be tried out and the rights to to um, long-standing characters can be maintained fairly cheaply for future development in other media. Um, it is very much it works very much against innovation uh, of any real kind. Uh, it tends to a kind of, of conservative stasis uh, for the most part. Uh, we have seen some gay characters come in, and I, I don't, don't really follow uh, American comics uh, very closely, but um, my my daughters are starting to read them, and so that's why I've been my entry point back mm -hmm. into them. Um, but the gay characters are still pretty much marginalized. Um, they have to remain celibate in a way that heterosexual characters don't. Uh, they have a tend to have a higher death rate <laughs> than heterosexual <laughs> characters. Um, you know, they're, they're the ones who will sacrifice themselves for the team first, uh -huh. uh, often. Um, and I thought there are a couple of, of instances that seem to be coming up now where they're, they're trying to take a more of a, uh, of a kind of natural viewpoint. It's like, oh, these, you know, these are characters who just happen to be gay rather than gay characters. Mm -hmm. um, some people may regard that as progress and some 
may actually regard that as kind of regression. It's like why you're making the their homosexuality unimportant, uh, in, you know, in a regressive way, in a way that's, that's like, well, we won't talk about their being homosexual, and they'll just they'll kick butt like the like the <laughs> other characters, and no one will care. Um, so I think it's uh, I think it's still very very different from what we find with the treatment of of homosexuality or homoeroticism, um, homoerotic attraction, uh, depending on how explicit the work is, that we find in, in boys' love manga. And there, too, of course, because this is produced largely by straight women, for straight women, there are, there's a problematic aspect of that as well. But it's a very, very different situation. I wonder if we could expand on that, too, that it's produced for women and by women. And, uh, Mark, I know that you deal with the that a little bit in your essay that talking about the feminine discourse of sexuality and why that's so passionately embraced if we go back to Paul's introduction what what keeps the the interest what what there is going on do you think that makes it so popular so fascinating you know that's that's the uh, that's the 64 million dollar question <laughs> or whatever the, whatever the figure is nowadays um, <laughs> you know i freedom um, you know, I, I did an informal survey at one Yowie Con, and I asked about 12 women in a row. You know, what, what, you know, why do you, um, you know, why do you do this? And you know, one said, you know, oh, this is our pornography. And you know, two interviews later, another one said, now, Mark, I want you to know, this is not pornography. <laughs> you know, okay. The the only common denominator was fun. They do it because it's fun. And and so, what I would read into that, if if I, you know, can do that. Um, if I'm permitted to do it, would be, um, you know, it's, it's a chance at freedom. It's a chance for, uh, control and autonomy, uh, you know, at, at expressing their own, um, you know, interests, their own emotions, um, you know, their own erotic desires. Um, you know, that's, yeah, that's as far as I can see, um, you know, uh, for it. But it is very, um, it is very popular among women. There are about, 20% of the attendees at the Yowicon are male. Um, you know, I'm going to make a guess, 5%, maybe uh, a little more, are there because they're the boyfriends of the women and they're just <laughs> tagging along. Um, but the, and, and the others are gay, identified in one way, shape, or form. But there again, if you ask them, and there's been on the, there's a, a thing called the Yowicon Forum, it's a bulletin board, and, you know, there are people who post questions, you know, why, you know, what is your sexual orientation? And the answers will be, my sexual orientation is, you know, I don't know. Or my sexual orientation is trisexual, T-R-Y, I will try. You know, so, <laughs> you know, they don't want to be pigeonholed. It's one thing Kinsey said in the, in, the, in, the, in the Kinsey's report on sexuality in the human male back in whatever it was, 48 or something. Uh, he said you can't force facts into pigeonholes. And the sooner we understand... <laughs> The sooner we understand that, the sooner we will understand the realities of sex. And, yeah, I, I think there's, you know, you can't, it's also a very non-political genre. You won't, you know, people will not take up, um, you know, you don't see a lot of discussion of homophobia in it. And to, you know, kind of come back or um, allude to what you said earlier, um, Gene, that uh, it's, um, you know, they're, they're doing it because they want to show these relationships and they want to explore them and, you know, consider issues, you know, that, that are not necessarily, you know, gay issues. And so there are certainly some gay men, uh, a number of them are gay males, who are um, opposed to the genre, to, opposed to yaoi uh, here in the States and opposed to boys love in Japan, Japanese males, uh, because of this, it's not realistic. 
um, I asked a Pakistani, he owns Tapsan, it's a gay bar in the Shinjuku, uh, and I asked Tapsan, and he said, no, this is, you know, this doesn't show my life. This doesn't show the life of the men I know. Um, you know, he is concerned with, you know, a gay life in Japan and having a community and to the extent that they can and, you know, helping and communicating with people and, and doing all kinds of cool things from a gay activist standpoint. But, you know, he does not see any of that reflected in, in Japanese boys' love. And I think it's fair to say you see very little, if any, but, well, probably some, but I mean, very little um, reflected in the U.S. too. That's interesting. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about reception in the East and reception in the West and uh, why perhaps there has been a historical fetishization of the East as an erotic source. And it's interesting that coming from the East, it comes in a very different uh, discourse. It's, it's the, it seems much more open, much freer, much more accessible for a variety of interpretations. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the Japanese-ness of the source of, the source of, of this proliferation across the, 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 uh, the markets and, and across the Internet. I know you talked about the Internet a little bit, but also possibly what's Japanese about it. Well, that's, you know, that it gets into, I mean, I'm, one, one thing I intend to do, I'm, I'm hoping to do is, is, you know, read some more on post-colonial theory um, to delve into it that way. Um, but it is kind of a fetish object in, in a sense, um, you know, in a, in a broad use of the term. Um, you know, people here, you know, tend to exoticize, you know, they make mm -hmm. exotic exactly. things that they don't understand and, and they don't have the quotidian day-to-day, -day, you know, reality of living there and having to deal with the culture. Um, so it's, you know, it becomes, you know, the grass is greener, you know, grass is always greener, whatever the cliche is. Um, there is some of that to it um, for all kinds of, of reasons, um, you know, that have to do with commodity flows and stuff. But, um, you know, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, there is that. On the other hand, I will say um, fans who are, you know, fans progressing along and really getting into the genre like many fans in, in many different areas of life, you know, want to really understand it better, and they'll make an effort. Um, you'll have, you know, Yaoi fans learning Japanese. Uh, you'll have Yaoi fans, you know, who are in college doing the best they can to get over there for a year and live. Um, you know, so, so they do try to um, come to a more sophisticated understanding of, uh, you know, what, what the cultural differences and similarities may be. Um, and, and I think there is that, you know, that is a... Um, that, that's kind of a very valued thing. I mean, you know, fandom has status, right? And the high status fans are the ones who are able to do that, to do things sure. like that. Um, you know, like anything else, you really want to, if you really enjoy it, you, you want to know more about it. And, and be participant in it as well. well um, one of the yeah. essays deals with Indonesia as, uh, as a very traditional, uh, very conservative culture, but there's a huge explosion of fandom. Do you see that in other countries as well? Well, um, it's certainly, you know, the one continent I know outside the U.S. fairly well because I've lived there for a long time is Latin America. Um, you know, I've talked to um, people who uh, are editors at manga publishing companies in Mexico City. Uh, I've talked to Doshinshi, boys uh, love Doshinshi uh, women in uh, Santiago, Chile, um, and in Lima, Peru. And, um, 
you know, yeah, you know, it's it's prevalent. I would say the, you don't have the uh, commercial um, products, the uh, manga, the voice of manga that is brought in and licensed uh, by publishers in the West into English, which is prevalent here in the U.S. and 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 available in Europe, at least in major cities and some major cities in Europe, like ones that bookstores I've been to in Stockholm and Paris. But um, so you don't have that. You know, that's scarce in uh, a place like Santiago, Chile. But, um, you know, the Internet is there, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of a lot of activity there. It, you know, when I've looked on domain, you know, I've done Google searches for domains, you know, like .ru for Russia, and I find it pretty much everywhere, not so much in Saudi, um, in the Mideast, like Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. I haven't found it. I haven't found it there. doesn't mean it's not happening, though, by any means. It just means it's not, as, you, know, it's, you know, it's not up to the level of Google's radar uh, for that. And Africa, that I don't know. Uh, I would I would expect in you know the wealthier uh, regions of Africa, South Africa, certainly um, it would be um, popular among women. Okay, so maybe we could talk a little bit about some some of the thematic issues. Um, certainly, the uh, Paul talks a little bit about where manga came from into Germany, but then what has happened to it in Germany. Um, and also throughout the, the book, people are talking about different kinds of representation of other and of self in, in the manga, the idea of switching bodies and switching characters or switching genders, a character changing and, and the um, sort of, um, what do I want to call that? Um, happenstance or, or coincidence, the, the, the story about the, the ring and putting the ring on the finger and then all of a sudden, and I apologize for not knowing more about these, these actual pieces, but I was fascinated by the, what, oh, I wrote it down. But only the ring finger knows. Only the ring finger knows, yes, that's it. Only the ring finger knows. I wonder if you could talk about, about some of the themes and some of the, the ideas that are coming across in, in the various versions of, of Boys Love Manga. Yeah, well, that was a, that's an article in our book by Neil Akatsuka. Um, you know, most of the, of the authors were, um, you know, um, professors or um, maybe a third of them graduate students, but Neil is an undergraduate student, was an undergraduate student. He's now in graduate school. And uh, he wrote about homophobia, um, and um, it was one of his themes, uh, and the fact that it... You know, he, this this genre is. Um, I'm lumping Yowie and Boyslip together as one genre. Uh, is is you know almost resolutely neutral. Um, you know, it's not here nor there. It's not you know any one thing or or another. It's too diverse a genre. There's too many works that have been published on the internet and print. Um, you know, to rope it in like that. But um, it does allow. You know, because it doesn't affirm the genre. Does not affirm. Specifically, that you know something like homophobia is a bad thing, you know, which in a queer context would be you know, something that you would think would be kind of a given. Um, you know, it, it 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 is open to charges of being homophobic um, or at least of tolerating homophobia. Um, so you know, that's a, that's an issue. I think that's something that um, it is what it is, and you know that it, you know it, it doesn't serve the purpose of uh, the the gay community to what extent there is a gay community. On, um, you know, in its battle against uh, prejudice and stuff like that. Um, that was one, yeah. I mean, we, you know, because it's a collection with these, you know, 14 essays, they're all over the map in terms of, uh, 
you know, uh, interest. I mean, I was amazed at, you know, what Paul found about what he reported in terms of the manga industry in Germany and you right. know, where things were, were going. Um, you know, there's, there's other essays that, um, as you pointed out about Indonesia, um, and there's personal essays too, including one by, um, by, uh, a man and a woman, one of them in the UK, the guy and the woman in Australia about their own very personal, um, you know, encountering the genre and, and how it affected them, um, kind of a thing. So it's really, uh, all over the map that way. One thing I would, um, would say is a theme uh, that would be worthy of discussion is censorship and uh, uh, yeah. what um, you know, you know, you know, the literal definition being a government government prohibition of speech, um, not just the corporate self censoring, although that certainly follows from it, um, and that's an issue. Um, it's an issue in Indonesia, as Yamela Abraham pointed out in her article, right. um, and it's an issue in the U.S. Uh, where there is a man um, in uh, in prison. For um, you know, for possessing, ordering, receiving, and possessing uh, manga that's considered unseen. Um, so, and in Japan, um, the governor of Tokyo, um, Ishihara Shintaro, uh, Ishihara-san, uh, uh, you know, has condemned homosexuality and condemned manga separately. <laughs> <laughs> the governor of Tokyo Prefecture, I guess he doesn't like voice love, although I don't know what he said on it. Um, so there's, um, you know, efforts in Osaka and some other places to restrict the sale of um, manga to young children and to, um, you know, um, you know, kind of regulate it more closely. And historically in Japan, manga has been a very unregulated thing, very unregulated. And the, the latest effort is uh, Ishihara-san's in Tokyo to restrict manga to um, sales to youth, and that's caused the publishers to just rise up in almost, you know, a revolt, if, you know, you know, they've, they've set up, um, they've announced that they're not going to attend a government-sponsored um, uh, fair for a manga, and they're going to have their own alternative fair, and, you know, they split their manga there, which is a big deal. I mean, you know, publishers like Kodansha and other, you know, household name publishing companies, um, because of that, you know, restriction. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, you know, that's, that's a big one, big issue, too. Sure. Paul, are you seeing similar things in Germany? Well, Germany also has uh, very, very restrictive laws against uh, not only child pornography, but there's also, uh, in the last couple of years, and these, these tend to be um, European Union-mandated um, laws uh, mm-hmm. nowadays, uh, so that they're uniform throughout uh, Western Europe. Uh, there's not only child pornography, there's also a separate category called youth pornography, uh, which uh, includes a slightly older um, age range. Uh, who cannot be depicted uh, in explicit uh, sexual situations. Um, so it's uh, so it's interesting. Pornography and prostitution are legal in Germany to a degree that they are not illegal nor respectable in many other Western countries. Uh, but uh, child pornography and now youth pornography are uh, extremely closely defined and and certainly uh, something that uh, both the government and publishers obviously have to keep a close eye on. What can and can't be published. Uh, the interesting thing about um, indigenous uh, German-produced manga, produced by German artists, uh, is obviously you don't have to worry about um, censoring something that was made for a different audience with different legal standards. So imported things have a different uh, so, reception. I mean, Im- Im- imported things you have to look at and go, can we do? Can we bring this in? Mm-hmm. Whereas indigenous stuff, you go, look, here's the, here are the laws we have to conform to. So you know, we're not going to show this. 
That's just not on the table. Yeah, so yeah, and I, I, I you, you can yeah. see that as an advantage or a disadvantage, but obviously it's it's a it's a different situation mm -hmm. from importing material that's already made for different audiences. Sure. You yeah, and, to I, and I would add. Yeah, yeah I, I would just add or, um, that uh, the the genre is all over the map. So so there are works that are um, as explicit as as any you know gay male pornography might be. Um, there's also a lot of works that are not at all, um, you know, they're erotic, but they're, um, you know, they're not explicit in the sense of violating, you know, U.S. or other laws. Um, so it's just, you know, in Japan and the U.S., it's just all, all kinds of, of, of stuff. So my guess yeah. is if there were some kind of censorship that would prohibit, uh, you know, effectively prohibit um, very explicit um, voice love, which would be difficult to do given the internet. But but even sure. but hypothetically, if it were if it were true, you know, you know, people are you know still are, are very much um, you know liking you know interested in and producing and consuming um, you know the, the less uh, direct, less sexually explicit works too. And it, it's also we use the term boys love as a, as a genre, and even in the subtitle of the book. Uh, but uh, boys love also intersects and and um, overlaps with all kinds of other genres, like manga in general does. So that um, uh, a boys love elements um, ranging from implicit and subtle to to all out explicit can be found in stories that could also be classified as horror, western, historical, comedy. Um, gritty police drama or romantic fantasy with elves and things like that. Um, there, too, it's all over the map in a different sense. Well, yeah, yeah. With, the, with one notable exception, I once signed up to do a paper on, you know, vampire, yaoi vampire, and I, <laughs> I found a hard time. I found a hard time finding Japanese examples of that. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if I that's find more of it in the West than, than in Japan. Actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sorry. No, no, that's great. Yeah, no, that I was kind of going to go there and, and look at other types of fantasy characters and and their use in erotic settings and and certainly the vampires. I was at the Popular Culture Association meeting in San Antonio and the vampire panels were fascinating because uh, there was sort of a similar similar dynamic of creating what you wanted to see. Uh, it was it was fascinating and 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 looking at some of the the manga and the anime that I know are are things that my children have have looked at, but still there's an element of dressing up boys dressing up as girls or girls dressing up as boys and um, playing games with with what a Western gaze would call uh, boys' roles and girls' roles. And I wondered if there was um, there's a lot more ambiguity, I guess. And sometimes you can't even tell if the character is really female or male, and it doesn't really seem to matter. To the story, either, and I wondered. Yeah, you could, go ahead. You could probably you could probably argue that Anne Rice was doing boys exactly. love uh, long before <laughs> manga ever were known in the West. There you go. Right, of but, course. So, so how does that how does that play into the academic discourse? Um, <laughs> I, well, I, I can start by talking about Japanese culture. The little I know of it is that, uh, I mean, there is a lot of ambiguity. I mean, you can go back to the Heian era. Um, back to the 10th century, 11th centuries, and find uh, written works that talk about, there's one story called The Changelings that mm -hmm. Gregory Flugfelder um, wrote about in an article, I think in his book, um, that talks about how these brothers and sisters exchanged, um, you know, sex roles, um, and, and, then, and then for a while then they switched back again. That, that has been a theme that's been 
uh, prevalent, I guess, uh, certainly um, present in Japanese culture since the beginnings of the Japanese language, almost. Um, and so today you have the Takarasuka uh, Theater, which is a, a women's uh, only, all-female um, uh, theater troupe that's hugely popular, um, you know, staging uh, plays about uh, popular manga like The Rose of Versailles uh, oh, wow. or, you know, sailors in Great Britain in the 1800s on the high seas. Um, and the audience for this are women. And, um, you know, it, 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 there's a huge fan base for the Hakurashi in uh, Japan. Um, as you said, um, Gene, a lot of characters, it's uh, sometimes hard to tell. Uh, especially to westernize, uh, you know, what their uh, sex might be. Um, you have, um, you know, fairly sex-ambiguous people in product advertisements. Mm-hmm. You'll see this on billboards and just walking around Tokyo. Um, you've got uh, visual K uh, bands, uh, boys bands, uh, who dress up in, in uh, women's clothing and, um, you know, are, are very popular too. Um, so these are, you know, it's been part of the culture for... Um, a long time. You know, uh, Paul mentioned earlier queer theory, and yeah, I think there's a lot that queer theory, you know, that's where I'm coming from um, theoretically in, in the genre is, is you know, looking at it from a queer theoretical approach. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of it there. Um, it's just resistance. It's a resistance to norms. It's a resistance to rigid roles. Uh, you know, it's a resistance to the notion of having two sexes. Sometimes it is of having mm-hmm. two sexes at all. Paul, anything to add there? Uh, just that uh, there's also a kind of downside to that in that uh, from the point of view of, of, sort of Orientalism and, and mm-hmm. the colonial past, is there's a long tradition, obviously, of, of seeing um, the non-European, and particularly East Asian non-European, as effeminate in a, mm-hmm. in a negative sense. Um, and a lot of that attitude still holds over, and, and some of this material, I think, can resonate with those attitudes as well, and in a way that that the consumer may not be directly uh, directly aware of, because those attitudes are, are sort of deep in our in our culture. Um, so there's there's there are elements of, of uh, freedom and rebellion in it, definitely, um, but they can also resonate with uh, you know, less positive, constrictive ideas. But you know that's true, I think, of, of most certainly popular culture artifacts and many high cultural artifacts as well. Sure, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and then I would layer that with a um, um, some racialization as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much of uh, manga characters appear to westernize to be white. Um, that's not how they appear necessarily to a Japanese person. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, the studies of uh, Japanese popular culture in general have shown that there are some stunning, you know, what I would consider, what I would personally consider in the U.S. to be stunning examples of racism, um, you know, expressed in product advertising and things like that. Um, and there hasn't been, unfortunately, not yet anyway. I'm hoping that there will be, um, you know, work in, in that area, too. But at the same time, it's interesting, uh, in, particularly in that light, how often in boys' love materials, in Japanese boys' love materials, uh, the material is... is, um, is uh, distanced, alienated in a way, by deliberately being set in the West or by having one of the, the characters be a Westerner uh, quite explicitly so that this homoeroticism is kind of displaced in a way that's, that you, you could argue makes it a bit easier to take 
well, it's not happening here in our backyard. Ah, yeah, uh, somebody yeah, else. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and some Western boys' love then reciprocates by deliberately setting it in Japan or, you know, anywhere but here mm-hmm. or in a historical materials anywhere but now where there's a kind of there's a kind of cushioning effect, I think, where it's like, well, you know, regardless of whether you find this um, sexually arousing or, or simply emotionally engrossing or not, uh, you also have that kind of distancing where you go, well, that's that's some other time, some other place when this could happen. Yeah, the, I, I I strongly agree. I strongly agree. And uh, the, the, you know, it's the first the, the works that I mentioned earlier, Tomonochin Show and Kesukuni Uta, you know, are set in these boys' schools. Um, mm-hmm. And the way those came about, they the, the two the two women who did them went to a, a film together showing in Tokyo. In the summer of Jose Prefitzli's Amitié Potuglia, special friendships by uh, a movie made of a book by a French author, and that's what turned them on to actually producing these two um, products that would become so important in the genre's history. Um, but that was very much a, a movie about two uh, two boys in a French school in the 1940s. I think it was the 20s. Um, so yeah, it was it was very easy to take that um, you know as a trope and displace it, as, you know, to use the word Paul did, and and you know then create something out of it. So in a way, it's it's an Eastern gaze on a Western uh, situation. And and the other way around too. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's all switching back and forth like like characters, and oh, that's great. Well, what do you yeah, guys work in? Oh, sorry, go ahead. It, there's an element of sort of fantasy projection in a lot of different ways there, um, projecting um, indigenous situations, whether it's in Japan or whether it's here in the West, onto an exotic other, uh, but also projecting the very otherness uh, onto them as well in, in different ways. So, I mean, it, it, can be, it can become really complex. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very, very sophisticated characters, I, I find. I'm still learning how to read them, but it's fascinating. What are you guys working on now? Paul, you can start. Oh. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm expanding uh, from my work on German manga into uh, work on the history of, of comics in Germany in general, sort of leading up to the situation that allowed manga to, to sort of conquer Germany uh, so easily. Uh, people talk about the manga wave in the West, but um, although it subsided a bit, manga was never more than about a third of the market in the U.S., whereas um, manga has dropped from 80% of the German comics market to 60%. Mm. And people are talking about a bust. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry, 60% is hardly a bust. <laughs> no. um, but because, uh, because the, the German comics industry has always been essentially colonized from outside, um, both in terms of the ownership of most of the major publishers and in terms of the actual material, which has been simply translated and imported, uh, the arrival of Japanese manga was simply another wave of that colonization. Mm. And in preparation for the ebbing of the manga wave, uh, the German publishers have moved to graphic novels. Mm-hmm. The German word for graphic novel is classic novel. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, an, it's just another layer of... Um, there, there are more indigenous works coming out now, more, more German authors being represented, and I think the manga boom has a good deal to do with that. Uh, because it provided some of the infrastructure and some of the level of confidence to say, yes, we can do this. Uh, but it's still a form that's simply being brought in from outside, going, let's try this on for a side. Well, do they have the, the comic cons and the, the gatherings like, like we do here? 
They, they do. They're much smaller compared to even the French uh, versions in the, the neighboring country. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's a healthy fan scene, certainly for, for manga and anime. There are three or four major annual events. Some are corporate-sponsored and some are uh, fan club-sponsored. Um, there's strong, um, small niche markets for other forms of comics, uh, American comic books. Uh, there's a Marvel comic fan club, for example. Um, and for uh, nostalgic groups for, for older German comics. Uh, but certainly they're not as active or as showy um, as the, the, the anime and manga groups. Uh, but there are also a couple of major comic festivals for comics in general that have been organized, and some of them are now 25, 30 years old in Germany. And I know you're in Canada. What about in Canada? Are you seeing similar events and things going on there? We certainly, we certainly do. Uh, we've had uh, Anime North was just up here recently in Toronto, and there's a big fan expo coming up that will certainly have manga and anime as well as other popular culture. Uh, but obviously, both because of our geographical location and our relatively small population, there are more Californians than there are Canadians. <laughs> um, uh, we were pretty much in the shadow sure. uh, of, of uh, U.S. culture, which is you know sometimes a good thing <laughs> and sometimes a bad thing. Um, we do have, uh, we do sometimes export material. There's some major Canadian uh, comics artists and even a few uh, well-known Canadian German manga artists. Oh, wow. You or, put Canadian, a manga, of sorry, Canadian manga artists too, who've published with, with, um, in German. with sadly now defunct Tokyo Pop uh, in, in the U.S. Ah. Um, although Tokyo Pop also imported a couple of German authors. Huh. Didn't say they were German, uh, <laughs> but published their manga in English as well. Mark, what are you up to? Well, uh, somatically, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll answer it somatically, and then what I have coming up, okay. um, when it works. But somatically, I'm interested in, in consent. Um, the email, I emailed Paul, actually, a few weeks ago that uh, at the San Antonio PCA, uh, after my paper, I was asked by, uh, I presented a, a story about a high school boy who um, adopts a dog, and they have... <laughs> Who's <laughs> become loveless? Uh, the dog takes on a human form, which, by the way, shape-shifting is, is a very common theme in Japanese. So one of the questions was, well, what about consent? You know, and you know, I didn't know how to really answer that. But when I thought about it, you know, the the works I mentioned earlier, Tomono Shinsho and Katsuki Uta, are about consent, um, and that's mm-hmm. a theme of a lot of voice love manga, I think. So I'm going to look into it and see if you know there would be something there I could write something about. Um, what I have coming up is I uh, have a chapter in a book um, called uh, Mangatopia. It's to be published um, in October by Libraries Unlimited. Um, there's a couple uh, articles on voice love in, in that book. Um, and the other one is a, um, a two uh, professors and I, uh, Kazumi Nagaki uh, from Oita University, uh, and Andrew Paliasati and I are uh, going to guest edit a, uh, a special issue of the Routledge uh, Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics, uh, which the theme will be a voice of manga. Um, so we're in discussions with them about a date, um, you know, looking at 2013 maybe, um, and you know, finishing up the CFP so we can actually put it out there. So I would encourage people to, you know, anybody hearing this who would be interested in contributing to that, um, you know, to get in touch with us uh, on it. Great. Have you guys got anything else you'd like to add? I can't think of anything. <laughs> We've, no, I, exhausted the topic well, pretty well. So. Other, other, other than thanking you for the, for the interview. Uh, oh, my pleasure. Yeah. 
we've been talking with Mark McCarry, who is co-editor with Antonia Levy and Drew Pagliasotti of Boys Love Manga, Essays on the Sexual Ambiguity and Cross-Cultural Fandom of the Genre, published by McFarland Press. With him was Paul Malone, Associate Professor of German at the University of Waterloo, who contributed an essay on manga in the German market.